Hello and welcome to the British Food History Podcast. I am Dr Neil Butchery. Today is the penultimate episode of this current batch. Next episode is going to be the Postbag Edition. So I'll be wanting your comments, questions, queries, general thoughts, not on just the episodes in this season, but every single one so far, and nothing is too obscure. My guest today is Diane Perkis, and we are talking about just some of the topics covered in her new book, English Food, A People's History, published by William Collins. And it's a really excellent book. And as it happens, and this is a total coincidence, she and her book are also nominated for a Guild of Food Writers Award, category Best Food Book. Have I mentioned that my book, uh, Dark History of Sugar, is also nommed, I must have done at some point, Best First Book. Anyway... Diane is Professor of English Literature, Oxford University, and she's written about several topics, such as the English Civil War, the supernatural, especially witchcraft, folklore and fairy tales, writer's block, and of course, food and food history. In her book, Diane has managed to tell the histories of various foods and drinks from the point of view of the people making and eating them. She's focusing here upon the common folk like, dare I say it, you and I, listener. And it's not an easy task. And she tells us a little bit how she went about approaching, researching it. I think it's going to fire off lots of food memories, as well as plenty of food history questions. So if any spring to mind, let me know for next episode's postbag special. Email me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com or leave a comment beneath the post on social media or send me a DM. I'm on Twitter, at Neil Buttery, or Instagram and now threads too. As doctor, that's D-R underscore Neil underscore Buttery. Or, if you like, you can post on the British Food History Facebook discussion page. That's at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash British Food History. And I'm giving you a deadline of the 3rd of September, 2023. Oh, if you haven't already, and plenty of people have, and thank you very much for your support. But if you haven't, please leave a rating or follow the podcast from wherever you get your podcasts and maybe write a review. Each one really counts. If you want to support the upkeep of the podcast and blogs more by donating the equivalent of a virtual coffee or a virtual pint, please visit the website britishfoodhistory.com and go to the support the blog and podcast tab. On that very same page, you can also become a £3 monthly subscriber where you get access to premium blog content, a monthly newsletter and my Easter eggs, or the bits I've had to cut out the darlings I've had to kill to keep the conversations and the episodes within time. The Easter egg this week is a cork, let me tell you, but I'll tell you about that a little bit more at the end. And of course, another way to support is to purchase a copy of one of my books, A Dark History of Sugar, as I mentioned earlier, but my other one too, my biography of Elizabeth Raffold called Before Mrs. Beaton, both published by Pen and Sword History. Okay, anyway, back to today. Diane and I had a great, rather meandering conversation that covered bread and its poor reputation compared to that baked in France, coffee houses and politics, and coffee houses as early examples of gay bars, tea and empire, and foraging, the latter being a particularly tricky topic to get at. Oh, and it probably doesn't bear mentioning, but I'm going to mention it anyway, there's a minor conversational swear. Blink and you'll miss it though. I'll be back at the end to tell you about the Easter egg and other news, but now, English food people's history with diane perkis welcome to the podcast diane perkis i'm very pleased to have the chance to speak to you 
Thank you very much. I'm grateful for the chance to talk about English food. Well, it's a fantastic book. I think it's fair to call it a tome. <laughs> I think it's very fair to call it a tome. It's 571 pages or something like that. And this is where I deliver the very bad news that my original manuscript was twice as long. Well, do you know what? I was going to ask about that. <laughs> so let's talk about it now. The way you've approached writing the book is very sensible. You've split it up largely anyway by a uh, type of food, although you do talk about meals as well, a little yeah. bit in between the main chapters. But how on earth did you whittle down the hundreds, thousands of different foods that are important to us on a social level to the dozen or so that you included in the book? It was one of those projects where there was a risk that it was never going to be finished. I actually submitted a grant application at mm. one point, mm. and one of the grant application responders in denying me the money said it would take 5,000 years to finish a book like this. Right. <laughs> um, that's not quite true, but it's not completely unfair either. And in the end, I tried to think of the foods that are central to the way people eat mm. over a longish period of time. Mm -hmm. So that was the basis for the specific foods I chose. So rather than focusing on something that actually has a fairly short life in food history, like imported mangoes, um, <laughs> I chose to focus on things that have some continuity so that the reader could look at, for example, bread and fish and see how English people have differentially eaten bread over very many centuries. It's always bread, mm -hmm. but it's also really variable across time. Um, so, so that was my criterion for choosing those particular subjects. And then some of them were intrinsically much more expansive than others. So, I mean, chicken ended up being vast. I try to think about the different ways that particular foods, though apparently continuous, actually evolve, develop, devolve, split up, change, regroup across time. Because I think that means that it's a series of small narratives and that's easier for the reader than the kind of food history where you go in the Middle Ages, they ate this kind of food. And then in the Renaissance, they ate that kind of food. And it feels very disjointed. It's harder than the reader has to make the comparisons in his or her head as to how that's actually working. So I wanted to sort of unravel some of that and offer a more direct way of letting people think about you know, the slice of bread on their plate and how it might differ from the slice of bread on their great-great-grandmother's plate. And you've made it even more difficult for yourself, of course, <laughs> for the fact that the 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 people that are the, the focus of the book are regular common people whose exactly. daily habits, thoughts don't necessarily leave a trace. So you've done a very good job of avoiding kings and queens and, you know, the nobility. I mean, they're included there, of course, often for contrast rather than yeah. anything else. People are less bothered about what King Henry VIII ate. They want to know what they ate. Much Agreed. more, much more so. and uh, But it's it's so hard to uh, pin down, you know, because it's something that I, I do too. And sometimes you can be sat, you know, head in hands. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to write anything about some of these subjects that I've just got this book deal on because <laughs> there's no references. <laughs> I, I totally get what you're saying. And, and what I've come to think is that it does require a lot of sidelong work. 
a lot of food history is really a history of recipes to start with. And then that can be conjoined to other upper class things like household accounts. So you can say, okay, I've got a recipe for wild boar here, and this is the the, um, the import of vinegar into such and such a household in 1550. Great. Yeah, that's lovely. But it's not at all what I was interested in. What I was interested in is trying as best I could to reconstruct what 90% of people ate. An awful lot of food history is what, about what 1% of people ate. Mm. So it'd be as if you opened a history of the global COVID pandemic and it was all about how the Trump family suffered. (laughs) And I mean, most people would actually find that pretty exclusionary, but we tolerate it weirdly in food history and fashion history. And we tell ourselves that's because we don't have the sources to do it differently. But I actually think we do. It's just that we have to be adaptive. We don't have the direct kind of sources that we have for upper class food history but we have a lot of sort of sidelong sources and then those can be pieced together. So, I mean, a big breakthrough for me in thinking about the history of bread. Mm. And I really started with the question, why does everyone think English bread is garbage in comparison with French bread? Geographically, we're really proximal. Mm -hmm. It can't just be a question of the fact that our climate's borderline for wheat for most of the Middle Ages and and the early modern period. Mm. There must be more to it than that. The French also run massively short of bread And actually, this kind of causes the French Revolution. So it can't be about abundance and supply. Mm -hmm. What is it that makes our bakeries go in the 19th century when theirs don't? And it turned out to be about fuel. That's just a question of slowly piecing together a series of accounts of people being arrested or gathering snap wood in an area that had recently been enclosed to become a hunting reserve. And if you track that across, particularly the Midlands and Northern England, you can see that what's happening is that people are losing the ability to fire a domestic bread oven or even a small commercial bread oven, because mm. that requires faggots, which are basically bundles of snapwood tied together. Yeah. And you need a lot of it, and it needs to be cared for, seasoned and dried so it makes a good hot fire. So there's going to be a moment a bit like the modern fuel crisis in a way where the only way you can get wood to fire your oven is to buy it. Mm. And then you get, you know, the emergence around about that time of people peddling snap wood, people peddling faggots in small villages and town centers. Mm-hmm. But then that's going to massively increase your cost. Being a baker in the Middle Ages is really marginal. Mm-hmm. You can barely make a profit from it. It's notoriously one of the worst trades to be in in terms of making money. So if you suddenly have a hugely increased overhead, then you're probably going to go broke. Sure. Once you've gone broke, there's not going to be bread available. When we just kind of found fuels to be just less available, is that when we switched? Because the one that I always hear, I'm never sure whether it's true, (laughs) I can't find anything either way, was that in France, it's all about baking bread on a daily basis. Whereas Mm. in England, it was a bake once a week. That certainly does happen in England. Sure. It also happened in France. Oh, okay. In fact, there's a a large, there's still in France, you can still occasionally see in bakeries in rural bits of France, like parts of the Languedoc, Mm. or even the less touristy bits of Provence. They're baking once a week, and they're expecting to live off the same loaf for a week, as opposed to the baguette, which is really a luxury good in that it's got a shelf life of about three hours. Ah, okay. I see. Good. Well, I'm satisfied now. Thank you. (laughs) No problem. 
Well, actually, that kind of brings us on perhaps to one of the things I'd like us to talk about anyway. Well, I guess it's not food, it's a drink. (laughs) Or two of our most popular drinks, tea and coffee. But of Mm. course, coffee is linked with a lot of exploitation. When I was writing the sugar book, one of the things that um, I found was there was a big misconception that sugar was a new world food. Yeah. And the same comes with coffee. A lot of people think coffee is a new world food. So I just thought, just very quickly... It's a meandering path, I know, but how it eventually turned up anyway in England. I mean, my take on it is that it's one of the instances of a food liking or taste doing a a lot of social work in shaping what went on in not only society, but politics, because coffee houses became the space where in a way, the democratic movement, movements towards democracy and radicalism kind of moved from being something that happened in the army to being something that happened in civilian life through the coffee house. Mm. Yeah, real um, mix. It really was a melting pot of different types of yeah, people, absolutely. wasn't it? The other fascinating thing about it is what led to their reestablishment in England was the return of the Jews under Oliver Cromwell, who, you know, I mean, obviously no one's got much time for Cromwell, especially if yep. they're Irish, but that was a good mm-hmm. thing that he did. And as soon as the Jews came back, they came back from Sephardic countries. So they weren't Ashkenazi Jews, but Sephardic Jews. Mm. And they brought coffees with them. And the um, best records we have suggest that the first coffee house actually opened in Oxford. Oh. Um, it's still there, Queensland Coffee House. Oh, really? <laughs> so also kind of tied in to some extent with the intellectual life of the nation. It was opened by a guy called Jacob the Jew, which is a fairly typical sort of Jewish type record that you have a first name and nothing else. Yeah. Um, and then it's actually Jewish people who then everywhere where the Habsburgs rule, there are coffee houses. So whether it's Venice or Krakow, um, wherever the Habsburgs stepped foot, mm. coffee houses open. And it, there's this interesting tension that also happens in England between these very autocratic governments, these monarchic elite systems of government, and the coffee houses and their journal literature and their newspapers and their political conversations sort of bubbling and percolating beneath that Mm. um, and acting as a kind of an outlet and a space, or I think I'm going to say diversity, and and that's so scarce and so hard to manage in a monarchic and autarkic system that it comes to be what coffee is valued for. And, and thus, you know, to think about the Chelsea coffee bar in the 1950s and 60s, similarly, and this is this is a form of dissent. This is a form of announcing your cultural difference from the parent culture that surrounds you, which is much more focused at that time hmm. on Lion's Tea Houses. I'd tell you what, one thing that you point out in the book, which I didn't know, I'd never heard before, was that quite a few... So so coffee houses had a certain... Rep, or some of them had a certain reputation <laughs> because yeah. they were very early examples of molly houses, you know, establishments for gay men to, to meet up and, and socialise. Yeah, I love molly houses. Yeah, absolutely mm. right. And, I mean, that, again, is reflected in some gay cultures that are more recent that in order for there to be a flourishing gay culture, there has to be a known meeting point that's nonetheless available to gay people, but not visible to the authorities, is is then the criterion. And yes, coffee houses seem to serve that purpose and then might transform themselves into, and the negative term for it is molly houses, which again is, is the sources we have for them are unremittingly hostile 
Yeah. Um, the very word molly is just a word for soft. Yes. So effeminate. So the, the sources we have, and this is kind of interesting, suggest that there was a lot of drag and that there was almost a theatrical element to some of these coffee houses where you arrived as, you know, William the Labourer. Mm-hmm. And then within the coffee house, you were Mary the washerwoman. <laughs> so you had this sort of separate identity that you could put on. And I think that's quite interesting for dining out in general. I mean, it may be that that was true in a sense for everybody attending a coffee house, that they might be quite an ordinary clerk in their office, but a discussion leader in their coffee house. And it might be an opportunity for many people to craft an identity that was their own creation rather than something imposed on them by somebody else. No, that's absolutely fascinating. I'm going to have to um, find out a lot more about a lot about that. It's absolutely great. And this is what I'm talking about. The, the, nuggets, the nuggets that you've found are absolutely amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I found them amazing too, but I think that the thing that makes them wonderful is that ordinary people's stories are fantastic. They're, they're, to me at any rate, just as interesting as Henry Tudor. It's just that they're not quite as long. And we know more about Henry Tudor. Mm. But there are very many men and women that we can know something about that are just as interesting as he is. Sure. And even if we do have to talk about him, there's people who aren't members of the royal family or the nobility who have to make the food and transport the food and touch the food. Yeah, so even then, absolutely. But even then, it's not mentioned normally, is it? Anyway, going from coffee to tea, why do you think we've taken to tea? I mean, it's maybe on the wane a little bit now, but why do you think um, we took to tea so readily? I mean, we did the coffee and we did the chocolate, but they were essentially ditched. Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah, they never became as mainstream as tea. Mm. It's a great question because surely we are one of the only nations where our national drink comes from a plant that won't even grow here. <laughs> mm-hmm. So away with all that du terroir stuff where, you know, you have wine because it's what you make or you have beer if you're Belgian because it's what you make. Mm-hmm. I mean, ale was our drink like that and it kind of died it actually died of coffee tea and and hot chocolate it really did didn't it yeah mm. and we can't really bring it back i don't think well, it's now a minority thing what we can do is save foods as a minority thing we can't save them to the mainstream so tea really becomes big in the 19th century william cobbett has a lot to say about this he does and in the in the great spirit of people he has a lot to say about most things <laughs> Yeah, and in the great spirit of people nagging the working classes about their choices, Cobbett is on hand on every occasion to say how well off they'd be if they didn't drink tea. Yes. In a sort of 30p lead kind of voice. I mean, I realised he had he felt like he had their best interests at heart, and this is all lovely, but he wanted them to spend their money on bacon and not tea. And I, one of the things I really looked at was these amazing reports from Cal in Wiltshire Uh, where the parish priest produced a um, submission to the parliamentary food inquiry that recorded what all his parishioners ate. And it turned out that very many elderly women, for example, were just eating bread, sometimes with jam and with a small amount of bacon once a week and subsisting on tea. And they could do that because the tax on tea had dropped. Mm. There was still a tax on it, but it had been massively cut. And that, I think, is what makes it popular, actually, that it's known by everyone as a luxury. Famously, Jane Austen wore the um, key to the tea caddy around her neck so the servants wouldn't steal it because it was so expensive. Mm-hmm. But once she's, round about the time she dies, the tax falls, and then suddenly everyone can afford this stuff that used to be confined only to very posh people. 
So yeah. in a bit the same way that we all associate champagne with luxury still, even though it's really quite affordable now in comparison with, say, good red wine, mm-hmm. we still think of champagne as a rich person's wine and we feel like we're doing something that rich people do when we drink it. And it has that sort of golden glow about it. This also applies to chicken, of course. So too with tea, suddenly something that's a privileged drink is an available privilege. So you and your family can enjoy what was once only available to a tiny minority of people and you revel in that. And it's a treat. It's an everyday treat, but it's still a treat. Mm. And that's one of the significant things about food that I keep coming back to in my research and in thinking about it, that Unlike, say, with property, you can literally buy your way into the upper classes for a relatively small outlay for a relatively short moment. (laughs) Yes. So you can, in theory, and people do this, actually. I mean, I had a student who saved up the price of a holiday with her fiancé to eat it per se in New York just once. Yeah. Yeah, I have a friend and you who does that, that kind of You're willing thing. to sacrifice mm-hmm. the holiday. I mean, it's yeah. a middle-class thing. Obviously, if you were actually working class, you couldn't, and you probably wouldn't want to. Um, but, but you can. You can save up. And occasionally in top Michelin restaurants, you meet people who are like taxi drivers, and they've saved up for it for months. You can save for it. And it's, it's prohibitive, but it's not as prohibitive as a new car or a holiday house. At the end of your chapter about tea, you talk about why you think tea is on the wane and why coffee has become such... Uh, I know it's just been brought into the bosom of the of the country now over the last sort of maybe 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. And that's largely due to empire and, and the loss of empire. Yeah, I think that's right. Mm. I, I think also that a lot of tea, Twinings particularly, marketed itself as a link to empire. Yeah. This was also true, and I write about this at some length with curry, that in in eating curry, and Lizzie Collingham is great on this as well, you're effectively eating empire. Yes. You're announcing your world dominance by eating a banana and showing that you can eat a fruit that was grown for you by someone somewhere else. Mm. And, and tea was part of that. And people sort of favoring, you know, first, first growth Darjeeling and that kind of thing had a, I'm um, not that I don't like the taste of first, first growth Darjeeling, actually well, no. I do. Mm. Um, but, but it also had a, a kind of metonymic effect whereby you were consuming empire you were part of something larger than yourself an enormous kind of Britishness that you know what do we know of England who only England know Mm -hmm. and I think that's exceedingly unappealing to anyone under 30 and I don't know why it would appeal to them that said my younger daughter drinks tea kind of incessantly and and loves first growth touching actually but is certainly (laughs) no fan of empire And I can't help feeling that those people who are trying desperately to make empire seem like a great idea to everyone over 65, people like Christopher Bigger are actually shooting themselves and the tea industry too, probably in the foot a bit more. Maybe it'd be better to think in terms of the fact that actually tea is an imported artisanal product like Perigord truffles or Italian pasta that, you know, rich people might choose to pay for rather than seeing tea as this sort of staple drink that ratifies our view that we deserve to rule the world. Yes, I think, and that's that's the thing that's just completely evaporated, I would say. And I've certainly changed my opinion. It's not like I was some kind of pro-empire person or anything, <laughs> waving flags. I've never been one of those 
kind of people, but it, it's just entrenched into our culture. So you're doing oh, it and you, and you don't know sure. it. I think a, a lot of the, um, the issues that's been happening in America as George Lloyd those oh, sorts yeah, of things sure. have yeah. really, of course, the, it's much more pronounced in America, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist here. <laughs> it really it does exist here. Does, for sure. White English people really, to really open their eyes. And I think the real aggressiveness that we're getting from, from other people is, a, is, a, is a, I mean, I used to be a teacher. So when you tell somebody, right. there's two types of people when you say they're in the wrong, they say, oh, I'm sorry. And the other kind still know they've done wrong, but they kick off. And go for it even more. <laughs> and it's I feel that's what's happening now. But, but everyone can be wrong. No matter how well informed you are, you can be wrong about something. Mm. Um, I mean, I saw Oppenheimer yesterday, and I had no idea that Oppenheimer was the first to theorize black holes. Um, I would have said I knew a little bit about the history of physics, but, you know, the movie really caught me out with that. And yeah. it was fantastic because I learned something. No, I'm always happy to be um, corrected if, I, if I'm wrong. I mean, it's, it's not a bad thing. I mean, from point of view anyway, when you, when you, you write or, or, or anything like that, you, you want to be as correct, correct's different depending on who you are, but you want to you know, be right. Yeah, I do. So I, yeah. so I want to be as good as I can be. So if I've done something wrong, I want to I know. Right, agree. No, I agree. But but also because every time we find out we're wrong about something, it opens the door into a whole new area of learning. Not just the one thing, but there might be lots more mm. that we could also find out. And yeah, I'm just insatiable in wanting to know more. And that means framing myself as actually ignorant. I'm kind of a fan of Socrates saying, I'm the wisest man in Athens because at least I know I don't know. <laughs> which is also a fair comment on my history of food, that there are very many things that I could have put in that I didn't, but there are also many things that I didn't find that other people will find, and that's great. That's how this is supposed to work. One of the things that uh, I don't avoid is reading books or going to talks by people who are looking into the same subjects as me, because even if something you might have written about a dozen times, talked about a dozen times, seeing the same thing from somebody else's perspective can be extremely enlightening even if you think you know you're a real expert because it's all down to opinion and, and perspective isn't it a lot of the things that you believe yeah and also just that no one person can read everything written on a subject particular subject as big as food I mean I'm always hopeful that every time I give a talk it's an opportunity for people to tell me things that I that I haven't noticed or that I haven't emphasized enough or that I didn't know about at all hmm or offer new perspectives, as he was saying about empire. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean things have just completely turned, you know, on their axis now. I think for the, for the better, too. in the main, for the better. Oh yeah, I agree. So. I, I don't quite get the way that some. It seems to have broken over some people like a cold wave of hail that the empire wasn't entirely good for the people it ruled over, because empire will not actually care about what colonials think. It's not even going to care that much about its own people. Well, no, because you don't get to be an empire. No, that way. that's right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, Empire works on the happen. principle that your money means a lot to us. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, t I totally get that. And uh, But I think it's striking that very many English people just seem now really reluctant to accept that that was the deal. That was always the deal, that yeah. you were always going to get the rough end of the pineapple, as we say in Australia. God, I remember as a, as a pupil and then as a teacher, the one lesson that we'd have about the um, slave trade, it would just be two pages, you know, it just opened up a textbook, two pages, one page saying, oh, this is how awful the slave trade was. And the other one was, but look how great we are because we were the first to abolish it. 
And that's it. And you go, what? Quiet. <laughs> Sweeping carefully under the rug the fact that, A, it was started by the royal family. B, <laughs> it was started by stealing other people's slaves initially. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. C, Barbados was the worst slave colony of them all um, and was our very own. Yeah. Um, and, oh, and the, the slave codes on Barbados were just the worst, absolute pits. Agreed. Awful. And not to mention the Middle Passage, which everyone kind of knows about now, and yet they kind of also don't because it's so horrendous. It um, is so horrendous. Oh. Talking about various different foodstuffs that may have been difficult to research and write about, the one which... I assume, anyway, you might be able to tell me the difference, was the most difficult, was the chapter you have on foraging. Yeah, I agree. It's a fantastic chapter. It really is. I wanted it so much because, basically, what I wanted to bring out there was that there's a huge amount of sort of local du terroir knowledge that's buried because it's mostly oral, Hmm. And it's rarely preserved in high culture works. You don't get recipes that include, and you do now get recipes that include forage food. You you have endless recipes now. But 50 years ago, the only recipes that included forage foods were things that were trying to teach people how to survive in a hostile environment or wartime cookbooks that encouraged people to use forage foods because they weren't rationed. And so as I started looking at foraging, I came to see how important it was, probably as part of a diet with relatively restricted fixed elements, like my Wiltshire woman with the tea and the bread and jam. Mm. And why didn't she just die of scurvy? Mm. Why didn't she just kill over from beriberi? Sure. A diet like that, you would think, might induce pellagra even if the flour was milled. And yet people didn't seem to suffer from scurvy as much as they did, for example, when they joined the Navy. So it was a noticeable thing that scurvy set in when you were at sea. Mm. Ergo, it hadn't really set in fully on land. How were they keeping it away? And I began to suspect that foraging might play a role. So if you're constantly eating grain pottage with some legumes, if if it's very boiled, even that's going to be borderline Mm. for minerals and vegetables. But if you're also eating handfuls of hawthorn, maybe that's going to do it. Yep. Maybe it's just going to be enough to keep you ticking over nutritionally and stop you actually getting very sick. And the other thing that made me think that was the, the well-known um, nutritional crisis of faith induced by recruitment in the First World War, almost taking us back in the direction we're going before, mm. where when the British um, introduced conscription, they realised that the vast majority of the urban working class men were completely below military standard. They had poor eyesight, they were short, they had rickets, yet they had all kinds of skin diseases. And this had been completely unimportant to the ruling class until mm-hmm. suddenly they were necessary to be the infantry. Um, And so immediately a number of sort of nutritional experiments started up and I report on one of them where it's it's almost of a category that would go with the Tuskegee experiments in America. They had a group of boys in a home and they either added to or took away from their regular diet to see what effect it had on their growth and development. And I mean, one of the really interesting things is that adding butter to their diet had a huge effect on mm. their growth and development mm-hmm. um, because it solved the rickets problem. 
And also they were borderline not getting enough fat. Another group got watercress and they also improved. Mm. Watercress is something you can forage for. So if you know where it grows, that's a problem you could solve yourself probably more easily than the shortage of fat. So I started sort of looking for where we could find evidence. And it turned out that folklore was helpful. Um, Even witch trials were helpful because it also emerged fairly clearly that what grows in hedgerows and at field margins is actually a highly treasured resource for the people in the area who well understand it. Hmm. That kind of disappears, ironically, at the same time as it's sort of nationalized in World War II. So my rural neighbors don't know that you can eat nettles. I know this because I went around asking them. <laughs> and yeah, we I live in a, a rural village on the Wiltshire, Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire border, sort of bet- between three counties. Mm. So we kind of don't have a pot to piss in because we're nobody's problem. We don't have good broadband. We don't have good electricity. <laughs> we don't have good plumbing. But on the other hand, no one bothers us much. Sure. And those, those villages, they know about blackberries, but that's it. Mm-hmm. Whereas... Probably in 1900, people living in the same village, which has been there since the Doomsday Book at least, would have had some sense of dot pudding as a springtime thing yeah. that you could eat to that they would have thought of it as cleansing your blood or revitalizing you somehow. And that's basically foraged greens with some grain that you put together. And, and it's obviously great because they well understood that by the end of winter, you're running low on various stores of vitamins and minerals and you need to replenish. It's it's, uh, in spring, not winter, that you get records. It's in spring, not winter, that you get scurvy. I came across a little patch of bistort, bisort rather, and I had a go making some dock dock pudding. It was was all right, actually. I I kind of agree, (laughs) yeah. And I, I, I actually think that things like that could probably be revived. I mean, I make a nettle risotto myself. I make a hedgerow salad. Mm. Um, I think lots of stuff like that could actually be interesting gastronomically rather than being dismissed as something old fashioned. And we weirdly kind of think, I mean, if you go eat at Long Plume or it's satellite restaurants, there's a lot of local food there, but it tends to be raised deliberately as crops Whereas if you go at, go and eat at Poix mm. in um, the Albrecht Plateau, a lot of their food is actually foraged. Mm. So we've sort of lost a tradition they've somehow retained. I think that's quite interesting. Of course, there was a time where everything was foraged. One of the amazing things in your book is the bog bodies. I love them. Oh. I love the bog bodies. I love them. And, and just the fact that, I mean, it's so wonderful what we can know. Oh, it's just astounding. Absolutely astounding. I've, I've actually, I've got goosebumps on my arms just talking about it. It's I know, just, it's just mm, incredible, isn't it? It's so evocative. I know, just the realisation, I mean, even just finding the skeleton of Richard III, they've been able to reconstruct that his diet massively changed when he became king. Even though he was a rich noble all his life, mm. he ate even better once he was the monarch. Yeah. And this actually shows up in his bones. And, and in the same kind of way, we can literally know what Lindo Man had for dinner mm. or lunch. The difficulty then is interpreting those findings and whether it's what Lindo Man had every day for lunch or whether, as some people have wanted to argue, it's what Lindo Man at the day he was going to be sacrificed. Yes. And was that ritualistic in what sense? Was it like 
the condemned man's last meal? Mm-hmm. Was it intended to enrich the value of his body as a sacrifice? Was it intended to represent something that the sacrifice was meant to accomplish? So was the grain, the inclusion of grain, for example, meant to direct the energy of the sacrifice towards the grain harvest? Mm. Was any of it meant to be a painkiller or a palliative of any kind? Um, I mean, this is where, you know, I'm going to sound like an archaeologist and say, we may never know for sure. Um, <laughs> but, but equally, what we do know is that there's a pretty wide variety of foods in his stomach. Yeah, He wasn't just scarfing down a handful of grain because it was there and you could boil it easily in a kind of billy. He, he was eating a rich range of plants and therefore the people who lived in that area and sacrificed him had a knowledge of the vegetation they were living among and its food potential. That's what we can glean to some extent for sure. Just anything that you can glean is just amazing. Just knowing that you know that somebody ground some grain for me Agreed. is is just astounding and it's these little threads you know that connect us you know some things you know we've talked about all these different changes throughout the, the centuries <laughs> to do with our food and drink but some things haven't changed hey i've been talking to you for ages now i do apologize it's been so fa- it's been so fascinating it's been such fun and i really appreciate that time that you've given to the book and the time you've given to the people in it oh no it's great i mean and we've just we've barely scraped the surface we've we've seen the tip of the tip of the iceberg i think in our conversation today so and there's so much i just hope other people i hope anyone listening or reading will want to kind of find out more and do their own research as well and think about their own family food history an awful lot of the very best food history is actually family food history where you know you ask your grandmother what she used to eat it's it's what i love about what i do it's obviously what you love about you do is, is helping people just become a bit more close to their forebears it's a very rewarding thing i i think Exactly. Rather than discarding them as sort of old fashioned, it, it, it's actually a thrilling prospect that we might be able to learn from one another. Can I ask you, because obviously the book has been a success and you're, we didn't mention this, we talked about when we were chatting before you, of course, nominated Guild of Food Writers. Thank you. Best food books, well you. deserved. And, and we'll, we'll try not to uh, slap each other's backs too much. <laughs> oh, I think that's fine. Um, I, I think it's well deserved on your part too. Oh, well, thank you. But what is next in line? Have you got any food-related projects, books, papers well, up coming up? Well, apart from appearances at literary festivals, kind of inevitably, I'm speaking at Budley Salterton Literary Festival in September. Oh, okay. That's good to know. But as well, um, for what it's worth, my next book is going to be on the English at sea, which again kind of comes out of some of the research I did for this book. I got very interested in scurvy and, and the Navy's roller coaster ride in trying to prevent scurvy. And that led me to start thinking about actually the use of indigenous peoples in exploration. So that's one of the things that's going to be about, so extending the idea of Englishness. Mm. I mean, I grew up in Australia. Every Australian has to do Captain Cook about five times in primary school. Of course. Um, And I've yet to meet an Australian that knew that he had a Polynesian navigator, otherwise he wouldn't have got anywhere or found Australia. That that sounds absolutely fascinating. So that's, um, is that going to be out soon or are you very much at this oh no 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 it'll take me five years to (laughs) write i've only just started on it um but no um that'll be with william collins as well it's it's quite fun in the early stages isn't it 
I'll ask you, how you, I'll, I'll ask how you're getting on with it in a year's time. <laughs> I love the early stages. The early stages where you're doing the research is brilliant. Yeah, it's such fun, isn't it? Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you very much for thinking of me. And I hope we meet again at the event. Yes. Exciting. Thank you very much, Diane. Oh, I do hope we do get to see each other at the awards ceremony, because between you and me, I'm rather nervous about it, I have to admit. Sorry about the background noise all of a sudden. There's biblical levels of rain just occurring in Levensoo, Manchester, as I speak. Diane's book is out now and it's published by William Collins and there is so much information there and it's wonderfully written. Seek it out. We mentioned Doc Pudding. I've left a link to a blog post I wrote earlier this year about it. It's in the show notes. The Easter egg is the uncut version of the conversation you've just heard. Every subject area had to be cut down for time and there were many rabbit holes that we went down. The edited version you just heard was about, I don't know, 33 minutes or something like that. But the full interview is well over an hour, so it's well worth having a listen. There are so many other things discussed. For example, porridge, people's food choices and why they make them, coffee mate, food phobias, the horror of ice cream, and bog butter, to name but a few. Oh my gosh, the rain. God is displeased. Access this Easter egg and the dozens of others, as well as the premium content, via the website britishfoodhistory.com. I mentioned that there would be a blog post last time for subscribers only, a school dinners related one. I've had a busy week, but I have worked out the recipe. I've just got to type it up. It's going to be for pink sponge with pink custard. It's an iconic pud. I had to do it. I have added spam fritters to my list of posts to write about in the future, so I will cover it at some point. So keep a lookout anyway for that um, pudding recipe in a couple of days. Subscribers, don't forget there's uh, the event at Manchester Central Library on the 13th of September, 6pm, and my talk at Ludlow Food Festival on the 10th of September. Links are in the show notes. Don't forget to send me your questions, comments and queries. I'm going to start writing and recording the episode in a week. Your deadline, remember, 3rd of September. Anyway, I'm going to dash out and bring the washing in. Cheerio.